You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Monster House presents. It's 1921. In the moorlands of southern England, near the little village of Postbridge, there's a stretch of road said to be haunted by a most unusual threat. It's not exactly a ghost. It's not exactly a beast. But if it's real, it has the distinction of being one of the more lethal paranormal threats one might face. Imagine yourself driving alone on the hauntingly desolate moorlands. To either side of you lies hilly, grassy landscapes punctuated by low rock walls, occasional sheep, and stunted trees. You might think that your biggest risk here is fog or or perhaps a stray farm animal suddenly lunging out in your way. You might even be on the lookout for escaped prisoners or the occasional wildcat said to still lurk out here in this landscape where the wildlands still hold fast against the creep of cities. Perhaps your mind drifts to the Hound of the Baskervilles. That book's not even 20 years old, and this is the landscape where Henry Baskerville is haunted by an enormous spectral hound. And that's when it happens. A pair of powerful hands, invisible and intractable, wrenches control of the vehicle and turns your speeding car off of the gravel track and into the moors. You have just enough time to note the most awful detail before the crash. These invisible hands, these awful disembodied things, they're covered in thick, coarse hair. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. Hey there, Monster Talkers. We turn once again to the source of so many investigations that we've done for this show. For this is yet another in our continuing look at Things That Scared the Crap Out of Us as Kids. 
In this case, I was the one haunted by this story, and I'll relate how I heard it and what I found when I revisited the case over the past few months. I need to thank a few people first. Several folks gave me a hand in researching this case, including Haley Stevens and Mark Norman, who've both been guests on the show before. Also, Bob Blaskowitz was enormously helpful in getting me the original Daily Mail articles, which defined the story. And listener Dave Wilton also gave me valuable research assistance. Much appreciated. I love collaborating with fellow researchers and always want to give credit. If you're interested in the sources of the work on this episode, please check the show notes because they should be pretty darned extensive when everything's in place. I think I've got a really good solution here for this case, but if you think I missed something, please let me know. As always, you can reach me by writing blake at monstertalk.org. Let's get on to the Monster Talk. I'm here. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is a really exciting topic, and uh, I should preface things by saying that uh, the there was some lead up to this show in which we did an episode of Monster Talk Live, and the topic was haunted hands, and this was for YouTube. Exactly, so, uh, uh, that's YouTube.com forward slash Monster Talk. Yeah, so listeners can or viewers, listeners can go back and uh, check that out as well. And we were all talking about uh, some spooky stories involving haunted hands, and so this was your topic, the the one that we're going to discuss today, and. Uh, we thought it's such a fascinating case. It really deserves to be fleshed out a bit more uh, and that we should actually have an entire episode on the topic. This is one that has been, uh, I was able to actually specifically say this has been haunting me since 1986 mm-hmm. uh, because I I know the original book that it came out of, which is uh, Monsters You've Never Heard Of by Daniel Cohen. And mm-hmm. I didn't know that that was that recent. Actually, I thought this was like a much older story for me. But no, 86, because I know I, I remember finding this book in the new book section at my library, checking it out and reading about the hairy hands and being creeped out. And I can explain what they are and all that sort of thing. And, and then I will will dig into our investigation and I'll talk about how <laughs> this went unfolded. It'd be really fun. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the, the hairy hands of Dartmoor. And I guess uh, if you want to tell us a little bit about the story and then we can look into it a, a lot further. The way this story comes into the, uh, the public is through a, an article in the Daily Mail. And um, I'll do a reading of that in a little bit. But the uh, the story is that basically a man has a friend who's an army officer who's staying with him. And he goes out uh, on a motorcycle ride and then later comes back on foot and reluctantly, uh, after some, you know, some badgering, d- reveals <laughs> that what had happened was he was driving his motorcycle when a pair of hairy hands took control of the steering wheel and drove him into the off the road, drove him off the road. And so he, he was lucky to be okay, uh, but it it turned out that when the uh, person who's telling the story did some investigation, he discovers this isn't the first time there's been uh, an accident on that road. In fact, there were two notable previous occasions, and he postulates that maybe they're all tied to these invisible, disembodied, hairy hands. And so <laughs> that is the mysterious uh, entity that is haunting this stretch of road. Um, which is called the B3212. And I just have to say, the UK has some really catchy road names. <laughs> we, we, should, we should delve into that just briefly to say that there is a classification system for roads in the UK. So you've got M roads, which are motorways, or as we'd call them here, freeways. Uh, and then you've got A roads, 
Uh, so that's kind of a grading system. And uh, the A roads are dual lane roads, and they're they're much faster than uh, B roads, which is what we're referring to the, here. The, the, the B is a beastly creatures attack you. Is that the B? <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently, apparently. But yeah, so these are usually single lane roads. Uh, and sometimes in the countryside they might even be dirt tracks and they tend to be a lot more slow and winding roads. So they're long and winding roads, I guess. This particular road is, it's, well, it is gorgeous. Now, obviously, saying it is. something like it's very subjective, but this is this is a road that goes through the uh, Dartmoor area of England, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's moorlands. It's... it's uh, like flat, uh, there's swampy areas, desolate, mm-hmm. there's sheep, uh, there's, you know, shrubs and trees and little farmhouses here and there, but it's just, it's, it's just beautiful countryside. It reminds me of the, uh, the country land where they're, uh, in the, in the American world from London, when they're wandering the moors, you know, stay off the moors. That's, it's, that, that's the land here. Oh yeah. It, it's really, that countryside is steeped in folklore and mystery and, uh, I mean, it really is the, the stuff of uh, fiction and uh, literature, Wuthering Heights, and The Hound of the Baskervilles was actually set in that area, too. Yes, yes, indeed. And there are uh, uh, beasts, uh, and this is the Devon area, Dartmoor area. This is Dartmoor National Park. Uh, there's places, you if you're driving along, uh, when you're not seeing, you know, low stone walls and sheep, you're also seeing little, you know, national park signs and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So there's little there, there's little restaurants and stuff where there's picnic tables and picnic areas. And, you know, it's a it's get out of the city and come to the wild kind of area, mm-hmm. you know, or if you're local, it's a farm and sheep area. So. so what is the evidence of case zero on this one? Because it is a little bit murky. It seems that there are a number of stories and uh, people often referring back to previous stories. So it's a little, little bit confusing to find out which is the original case. Exactly. So let's talk about So the original story that gets this all going comes out on October 14th, 1921. And this is a short newspaper article in the Daily Mail. I'm going to read it. From the Daily Mail, October 14th, 1921. The Unseen Hands. By T. Gifford. The stretch of road is quite an ordinary one. It is wide, straight, open, and bordered on either side by a broad strip of rough grass. It slopes gently to a brook, which it crosses by a narrow humped bridge beyond which lies the village of Midmoor. In winter, it is a lonely spot, but in summer, many vehicles pass daily. One day in June last... A doctor was riding down this slope on his motor bicycle in the sidecar of which he had as passengers two children. Quite suddenly, so the children say, he called out, There is something wrong! Jump! Next instant, the machine swerved, the whole engine broke away from its fastenings, and the doctor, flung headlong into the road, was killed instantly. The children, though shaken, were happily unhurt. Some weeks passed. Then one day, a motor coach was traveling up the slope when, quite suddenly, and for no apparent reason, it swerved, mounted the grassy slope to the right of the road, and though it did not upset, lay over at such an angle that several passengers were thrown out, one, a woman, being very seriously injured. 
This accident occurred at the same spot as the former one. Yet listen now to the sequel. Friday, August 26th, was a dull, rather foggy day. In the morning, Captain M., a young army officer who had been staying at my house, left on his motor bicycle to visit friends at some distance. An hour later, I was in the garden when I saw Captain M. coming up the drive. He had blood on his face and his bicycle was badly battered. Had a bit of a smash and thought I'd better come back, was his brief explanation. I took him in and saw to his cuts and bruises, which were fortunately not serious. How did it happen? I asked. He looked at me rather oddly. I hit the turf at the edge of the road, he answered. What? In the fog? No, there was not much fog. I could see all right. I suppose I looked puzzled, for I knew that he was an expert cyclist and had ridden his machine some thousands of miles. It was not my fault, he said at last. Believe it or not, something drove me off the road. A pair of hands covered mine. I felt them as plainly as I ever felt anything in my life. Large, muscular, hairy hands. I fought them for all I was worth, but they were too strong for me. They forced the machine into the turf at the edge of the road, and I knew no more till I came to myself, lying a dozen feet away, on my face, on the turf. I have since visited the spot, which is the same at which the two previous accidents occurred. I make no comment and will only add that, for obvious reasons, I have altered the name of the village. Now, the first time I read this, I thought, well, that's interesting. I mean, so basically, this is a story about a motorcycle accident that happened in June of 1921. And in that accident, there is a man who is riding in a motorcycle with a sidecar, and he's got mm -hmm. two kids in the sidecar. And at some point, something goes wrong. And he yells to the kids to jump, and then the machine swerves and crashes, and the man who's driving the motorcycle is killed, and the children are not. They're fine, okay? Um, and in that particular story, you'll notice they don't actually name the person who gets killed, right? Mm -hmm. But this Daily Mail article generates a bunch of inquiries. I guess it generates a lot of mail. So mm -hmm. a few days later, October 17th, they run a new story, an additional story, a follow-up story, if you will, not written by the same author, but this one goes into more detail. So let me, it's not very long either. Let me go ahead and read this one. From the Daily Mail, October 17th, 1921. Unseen hands. Eerie mystery of Devon Road. Motor Adventures. What is the mystery of the unseen hands on the post bridge, Two Bridges Road in East Devon? On one stretch of this road, a little distance out of the Dartmoor village of Postbridge, three curious accidents have occurred since the end of March. These accidents were described in a veiled manner in an article called The Unseen Hands, which appeared in the Daily Mail last Friday. In that article, Mr. T. Gifford described how in each case the vehicle unaccountably swerved to the side of the road. On this first occasion, this strange swerving resulted in the death of a doctor who was on a motorcycle. On the second, a motor coach was affected and several passengers were thrown out. 
On the 3rd, an officer friend of Mr. Gifford, riding a motorcycle, stated that he actually felt two large, muscular, hairy hands close over his own and force him into the side of the road in spite of his resistance. As a result of this apparently enforced turning movement, the young man was hurt and his bicycle was damaged. The doctor in the first instance was Dr. E. H. Helby, medical officer of Princetown Prison. Were his hands similarly turned against his will by the large, unseen hands which so nearly killed the young officer? It is impossible to answer the question, but the fact that he shouted to his two children, passengers in the sidecar, immediately before the accident, telling them to jump as there was something wrong, shows that he was aware of the danger. Yesterday, the author of the article, who is interested in psychic matters, told a Daily Mail reporter that two explanations of this matter were the interference of an elemental or natural spirit or of the earthbound spirit of some such person as a murderer. As far as I know, however, there is no record of a murder having occurred near the spot, he said. I do not think that the young officer to whom the last accident occurred knew of the fact that two similar accidents had taken place on the same spot. The accidents happened within a few hundred yards of each other, I should say. The place where the accidents occurred is near the gates of Archerton, the house of Sir Courtney Walter Bennett, former British Consul General at New York. Okay, so in the first story, they didn't even name the real village. They called it Midmoor, and they changed the name of some of the people. But in this, this version, you can hear that the village is called Postbridge, and the author of this piece details three different accidents which they attribute to being tied to the unseen hands. Now, I find it curious that in the uh, the story from the officer who has the motorcycle accident and, and lives to talk about it, he describes the hands as being hairy. Now, if invisible hands are grasping his hands, and the, how does he know they're hairy? Like, are they hairy on the palms? And what does that say about the sexual behavior of these invisible hands? I just... <laughs> I, exactly. I wondered the, the very same thing. I mean, uh, if it's something obviously that's visible, you could see if the hands were hairy, but how, and as you say, unless the palms were hairy, how would you actually feel that? And I think... If you're in an accident too, uh, how would you really be able to determine something like that? You're going to be watching the road. You're going to be having all of this sensory input. How would you feel something like that? It just seems bogus to me. It, 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 it does, doesn't it? it but but it, it obviously caught the people's imagination. Now, there's several things at play here. You'll notice in this article there was some terminology. He, he talks about interference of an elemental or natural spirit or of the earthbound spirit of some such person as a murderer. Now, <laughs> if, if your average reader is reading this today, they may not know what the heck he's talking about. Uh, if you're a gamer, you've probably heard of elementals in like role-playing games and that sort of thing. But these are terms that actually come from spiritualism and more specifically from theosophy, which we talk about quite a bit. So take a drink. Right, making it sound like the person's a little bit biased. More than a little, I think. Um, elementals, and there's also this other concept from theosophy called elementaries. They sound similar, but they're, they're a little different. So one, an elemental is a conscious entity or spirit that can interact with the physical world 
uh, and is usually tied with we would think of like an air elemental or a fire elemental. The, 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 they're they're an elementary raw force of energy with consciousness. Now this may sound weird, but it's also the same sort of thing as uh, you know jinn. I mean, they are basically often invisible and can interact with the world. Fairies often invisible and can interact with the world. They have consciousness. Mm-hmm. So these are agencies. These are these are agency entities that can do things. That's the idea behind them. And but mm-hmm. elementaries ties in with this earthbound spirit idea. This is someone we would call probably a ghost. This is someone who has died, and for whatever reason they didn't move on. They're here. They're stuck. And they are often angry and, you know, interact with the world. These are clues that the person telling the story is not mundane, secular, or unfamiliar mm-hmm. with the world of the paranormal. This is a person who is familiar with the paranormal, who who is uh, familiar with the terminology of the paranormal, which might be a bias. Absolutely. And with the case that involved the fatality, I think it's interesting in that some sources and references – talk about the the two kids, usually two girls. Sometimes they say that uh, they were the, the daughters of the man who was killed. Sometimes they say that they were the daughters of uh, another party. And in other cases, there were no children. So do we have any evidence that there were children in this involved in this accident who survived? That's a really great question. Um, the Article calls him Dr. E.H. Helby, medical officer of Princetown Prison. A quick note of clarification here. Dartmoor Prison and Princetown Prison are the same place. The prison, which opened in 1809, is about seven miles away from the Postbridge Village in Devon, where our mysterious crashes take place. The prison has a robust history of its own, but its role as an active penitentiary is scheduled to come to an end in 2024. I actually went a little further than a lot of the ghost pages do. That's the thing. It's another case of uh, this uh, folklore being repeated again and again, the exact same story, maybe with slight differences. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. But, but they don't go into any further detail. So without, so before the ghost story gets picked mm-hmm. up, we have a notice of the death of Dr. Ernest Helby in the newspaper of the Scotsman. So this event took place on the 28th of March, 1921, and here is how it is listed. Okay, so this is from the Scotsman newspaper. And I want to give this some context because this is not the obituary of Dr. Helby. This is a uh, like a bulleted list of, of auto accidents. Basically, the article is said there's been 1921 before this news story about the, the unseen hands comes out. There's a series, it's almost like there's a mini moral panic around the dangers of motor, motor cars, right? There's all these different accidents being listed, but here we go. It says, Dr. Ernest Hasler Helby, medical officer, Dartmoor Prison, aged 51, received an extensive fracture of the skull through the breaking of a portion of a motorcycle while he was driving from Princetown to Tavistock. A verdict of accidental death was returned at the inquest on Saturday. The deceased's two daughters were riding in the sidecar when the accident occurred. Those were not his daughters. Now, we know these were not his daughters because his wife, uh, I believe her name is Maud, uh, we have records of, like, like legal records of their family, and they, they, they didn't have kids. Uh, like Interesting. So the story that the children were children of the uh, prison officer, 
uh, that you know someone who worked at the prison and he was having the kids with him is is possible. I haven't been able to get to a a, a primary piece of evidence that identifies who those girls were. They are repeatedly included in the story, and I'll tell you what else is strange. Sometimes his wife Maud is included in the story as having been there, but I can't oh. find any of that in the primary stuff. So like I can't mm-hmm. find any primary sources. Lots and lots of tertiary and especially modern coverage has. I mean, there's a pile of people on that motorcycle. So, uh, but no, no, that's not the case. Now, also, notice what it says. Received an extensive fracture through the skull because of the breaking of a portion of the motorcycle. It was a a mechanical failure Mm -hmm. on the motorcycle. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, they also say that in other stories that, like, the motor, like, had broken away from the main frame of the motorcycle. So he knew something bad was happening to the motorcycle and yelled right. to the girls to jump, okay? Mm-hmm. But didn't have a lot of time, right? Now, I say that because all of these sources that are around the time of the event mentioned that he shouted to the girls and that they you know, jumped to safety or that they were thrown to safety mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. What they don't mention is him shouting about unseen hands or hairy hands. Right, right. But if you read a modern ghost story version, they will. He mentions the hairy hands, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's the first. This is case. This is literally the case that in modern, if you like, go out read a current news site, it's likely to tell you about Doctor Helby and how the mm-hmm. hairy hands caused his crash. And and then the the second wreck that happens involved a big vehicle called a charabank. This was one with the pile of people. Yes, yes. And it's it's a golly, this this looks dangerous. But when I was looking at these old newspapers from the nineteen twenties, Charabanc mm-hmm. tours of the countryside were super popular. It's like taking a land mm-hmm. cruise. This this vehicle is I'm gonna have to put a picture in the show notes. This it, it's like a bus. But there's no top. There's no roll bars. There's probably no seat belts. <laughs> yeah, it looks like they've crammed people in with the, the photograph that you've provided. I mean, it really looks like a kind of old Model T Ford or something with a, a stretched back. Uh, and it looks very top heavy. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. And, and, and if we're talking about roads like the B3212, uh, very undulating, dangerous roads, and if you were going at high speed and if the conditions were poor, if you had fog or rain – or even snow or sleet, that would be extremely dangerous. It would. But this happened in August of 1921. Uh, This happened um, August 25th, 1921. So before the the Helby case. Just a few months after. Yeah, sorry. I'm getting confused. It seems like everything took place in 1921. Everything did take place in 1921. year of the hairy hands. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So so the the Charabank accident happened in August. So April, May, June, July, August. That's five months after after the motorcycle accident. Uh, And I have the newspaper coverage of that as well. The Western Morning News, August 25th, 1921. Charabank overturns. Passengers thrown out, lady seriously hurt. A serious Charabank mishap occurred on Dartmoor yesterday. A small carry car from Torquay was running between Post Bridge and Two Bridges when a spring broke and the steering got out of control. The car ran into the ditch and completely overturned. The 14 passengers were thrown out and some of them pinned under the car. They managed to extricate themselves in safety, with the exception of a lady who was recovered unconscious and seriously hurt. 
other carry cars came up and took the passengers back to Torquay. The injured lady was being conveyed to Tavistock Cottage Hospital, where she lies suffering from serious injury to the spine. It was found impossible to remove the damaged vehicle, which was left overturned by the side of the road. The car was making the usual day trip from Torquay to Princetown and Plymouth. Now, notice in that coverage, 14 passengers were thrown out. Some were pinned under the vehicle. One person uh, was uh, seriously hurt. They said that that person had a back injury. They also said it was a woman. Um, But following up on that, I found that a person uh, succumbed to those injuries a few days later, and it was a man named Mr. R. Lee, age 30. So I think in the original coverage, like this, you know, there's no internet. Your reporters are doing the best they can. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I just feel like maybe the detail that it was a, a man versus woman got a little muddled along the way. Uh, but, but we know that it was, there was one fatality. Um, but the thing is, they tell you exactly why the vehicle crashed. A spring broke and the steering was lost. Like they lost control of the steering of the vehicle. That, again, has nothing to do with invisible hands, right? Another mechanical failure, yeah. Exactly. So the person who does this initial story in the Daily Mail, uh, they're telling a story about their friend who reported hairy hands. And then he's conjecturing, and I think he's pretty clear that he's conjecturing, that maybe that the uh, other two deaths uh, were caused by something similar. But he also says that it's possible... Well, I guess here's where it's re- I find it really interesting. This article is so popular. Let me just say this. This article is so popular, mm-hmm. and it gets lots and lots of letters. These stories are reprinted in other newspapers who don't just reprint the story. They make it better. They embellish it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, at the time, as we've mentioned on the show before, spiritualism starts like in the 1840s with the Fox sisters in, in, in the United States, but it spreads to England. And it's quite popular, but it gets a huge resurgence in popularity after World War One. Um, and, you know, people like Arthur Conan Doyle are big, popular celebrity uh, promoters. Um, a lot of the aristocrats and elites socially are involved in spiritualism and seances. And there's all this news coverage around whether or not mediums are real. And, and, mm-hmm. and they've got their own, like... Um, publishing ecosystem as well. They have a spiritualist newspaper called Light. And I've got an article here from Light in August of 22. So it's the next year. And in this case, the author uh, expresses all kinds of ideas about what might be causing uh, these accidents. And he's not saying anything uh, mundane. It's all supernatural. But he's offering um, the idea that basically, uh, well, let me pause and read the piece right quick. From the spiritualist newspaper, Light, August 1922. The Hairy Hands of Dartmoor. Those who remember the incidents related in the newspapers last year under this title may be interested to learn that a further accident at the same spot was narrowly averted less than a month ago. Quite possibly other cases have occurred of which the writer has heard nothing. It may therefore be in place to offer an explanation of this series of apparent coincidences, particularly as occultly interested ladies and others contributed to various papers startling theories of ghostly interference, 
maligning our ancient British progenitors and evincing no little misunderstanding as to the nature and functions of elementals and elementaries. It will be recollected that in the first instance, a doctor riding a motorcycle was killed after shouting to children in the sidecar, something wrong, jump. What occurred was this. Traveling at something like 40 miles per hour down the very tempting slope, apparently with an engine loose in its bolts, the front wheel jammed. The doctor shouted to the children and almost at the same instant charged the bank and was killed. At the moment preceding death, he must have created a strong mental picture of the immediate cause of the accident. This mental creation, projected, as all thoughts are, into his surroundings, was promptly isolated. It could not remain with its creator, as undirected thought images do, because the physical link was broken. It therefore persisted in the locality of its association, an actual force of an electrobiological character capable of actuating any suitably disposed organism with which it might come into contact. Scores of vehicles and pedestrians pass the spot, and so far as we know, nothing happens. The mental bodies of those who might be affected being busily occupied in receiving and transmitting thought. But one day, a charabank passes, its driver in a state of mental passivity. Immediately, the isolated thought force operates his nervous system, just as an outside live wire may contact and set aglow the lamps of an electric light circuit, and an accident occurs. Later, a motorcyclist passes, also in a similarly receptive state and traveling at high speed. He is switched into the bank, feeling a pair of hairy hands over his own. Here, we have the complication which has led many astray. But what is it worth? One cannot tell that the hands are hairy except by doing as Isaac did and feeling the back of them. The fact of an outside force operating the muscular system apart from one's personal volition could but give the impression of others' hands on the handlebars. The rider was going too fast to recover control and there was a serious accident. The thought force is not permanent. It exhausts itself gradually into other forms of energy. It is essentially dependent upon the concentration with which it was created. We may or may not have heard the last of it. The same phenomena may be recognized frequently enough around us. Repetitions of suicide and emotional disturbance on the scene of tragedies are common enough. Clairvoyant vision can even visualize the creation of the influence, which is the explanation of many so-called hauntings. The thought force only affects suitably disposed persons, though the world would be a better place if we all realized the extent to which, for good or ill, we interact upon one another. P.H.F. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars, eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the Volleyball. 
Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Hey, y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. So that's a little longer, but one of the big ideas there is Maybe as the person, uh, the motorcyclist in the original case died, maybe he was thinking, I've got to turn. And his idea was released into the universe right before his brains were smashed, right? And so now the idea has nowhere to go. And so it's just lurking out there on the side of the road as a thought form, waiting to hop into some poor sap who's driving by. Strange. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> well, really? <laughs> we, we should mention, too, that, uh, as you said, Spiritualism had a resurgence with World War One, And so we're talking about 1921 when these accidents occurred or these events occurred. So the World War One had just finished in 1918 and there were about 20 million deaths that had occurred. So you certainly had a lot of people who were desperate to believe in an afterlife and hoping that they could somehow contact those who died in the war. Um, so, yeah, that, that really accounts for why uh, people were into this. And, and yeah. I think just – in general, not only connected to uh, World War One, but just other uh, – I mean, this was a, a time when these kinds of stories were really rampant. Yes, they were. And I think that is something that's really lost when you get these sort of echo chamber retellings now because now it sounds mm. like a ghost story. But it's not exactly a ghost story. It's something else. It's an entity story, and it's it's an entity story that is one person's, let's say, novel idea – that is picked mm -hmm. up and repeated and, you know, contemplated and shared and all fits in an ecosystem that's lost to us. This world, like the way if you right. talk today about somebody, you know, I've gone on a gluten free diet. Right. OK. We'll mm -hmm. know what you're talking about if you're if you live in America. Sure. OK. Sure. You're on a gluten free diet. But mm -hmm. it's possible that in 75 years, no one will have any idea why you're saying that. <laughs> like like the context will be lost <laughs> because that cultural fad won't be there anymore. So even if the language mm -hmm. remains, like the, the context is gone. So, Oh yeah. It might even be more of an accepted thing too. So or it could go the other way. Be... Exactly. Yeah. I, I picked gluten-free. My sister has celiac, so I, I'm not preaching on that. I just, <laughs> I don't <laughs> no, know why that popped we'll in save, my head. <laughs> we'll save that for another show, but yeah, yeah. you have to ask then who was this person uh, that we, we keep oh, referring oh, to? Oh, the one who told the original story. Uh, you, yes, this this uh, that's character a, it, that's writing about. Do you want to? 
delve into that now? Or? Yeah, that's T. Gifford is what we have for his name. No, but we don't we don't know much. Of, I don't. I wasn't able to identify his full name. And it, I, I'll keep digging on that. If I find something, I'll, I'll do an insert. But uh, what we do know about him. I think I read one reference that said Theodore, but I think it was really someone speculating. Yeah, it could be. I, I, it's funny because there are so many stories about this case that have names and full names. And like some of them are real and some of them are just made up. And I, I don't – there is – this is a very – strange story in that digging back down to the root original we know this is part of case zero this is you know we know this is the source material is hard because nobody puts their friggin sources in their show notes or on their articles (laughs) just uh, uh, uh. Uh (laughs) or even their ghost it's it's ridiculous so um i that i find that annoying but we do know that he self-identifies as being a person interested in spiritualism we know he uses the terminology of spiritualism and theosophy and it's probable that at this point in the 1920s those are all a smear of ideas like that there's a big i mean so it's not like you go down to the theosophy church and have a theosophy sermon and you know i mean they they do have like practices but spiritualism practices and theosophy practices these are all um, they're all over the place. They're they're wild. It's uh, I think the word uh, I'll, I'll use syncretism or um, there's another word hybridity. Um, yeah, kind of blending you know, together. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. this is a this is a, a smoothie of uh, religious and philosophical concepts, mm-hmm. right? So well, what I think is really interesting about this case is that you have these kind of uh, these stories that we've been discussing that have particular characteristics. You have uh, a, a the, the road is involved, and then you have an accident taking place, and then you have the appearance uh, or the sensation of these hairy hands. But then there are some other cases which are also attributed to this legend, and they don't seem to be, I don't know, canonical um, or. Uh, yeah, the, there are accidents that happen all the way up into the 1960s that are attributed to this being caused by the hairy hands. Uh, Mm -hmm. some accidents end in fatality. We don't know anything about, you know, if a person dies, unless in their blood is they're dying, they wrote, it was the hairy hands. We don't really have any indication that anything. We didn't have the smoking gun. Right, exactly. (laughs) And then, uh, I think like the last one was in the sixties and it was, uh, described as being, uh, more like the guy was driving down that road and he felt like spiritually oppressed, you know, like he felt like something bad was happening. Uh, and I mean, you know, I mean, you're driving in the moorlands and you feel like something creepy's going on. Okay. Well, clearly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's like we talked about when we talked about uh, the Scottish ghosts um, in the uh, that, that Kirkyard, right? The uh, oh, yes. they're like it, when people got a cold chill, you know, they felt uneasy. I'm like, you. You, you got a cold chill. And where were you again? Scotland? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, cold, it's, yeah, it's like cold <laughs> spots. You know, we were talking recently about Alcatraz, and Alcatraz is just one big yes. cold spot. Yes, it is. Exactly. <laughs> well, so, one case that I find particularly intriguing and is different to these 1921 cases is the, the caravan story. Can you tell us a, a bit about that? Okay. We're going to go on a little side trip here. At this point in the discussion, Karen asked me about the legend of a caravan camping trip from 1924 that involved the hairy hands. I had read and heard versions of that story, but I had not run it down to source. 
So rather than include the sad lament that I chatted with her about, about not knowing the answer, I decided to explain what I subsequently found, which clears up that part of the mystery. My version of this original legend, as I've said, came from Daniel Cohen's book, Monsters You Never Heard Of. The version that I had as a kid was a reprint from 1986, but the original book was from 1980. Now, many of Dan's books include information about his sources, but these are children's books, and they're not really the kind of books that usually include end notes and bibliographic material. Still, we did know from some retellings of the story that we found online that this was closely tied to a folklorist named Theo Brown. Now, I had a hard deadline of getting this story out by December 26th, so even though I ordered some of the research material, the book that reprints her research would not have gotten to me in time, so I have to thank here Haley Stevens and Roger Clark for their assistance in getting me the relevant pages. Happily, I now have Theo Brown's Devon Ghosts book from 1982 in my own collection, and I look forward to reading the rest of it, which includes some other local legends from the area, like the 1855 Case of the Devil's Footprints. It's quite a little book. Her book also includes the story of Dr. Helby's demise, plus much other detail, including the caravan story, which we're about to get to. But first... Let's read what Theo has to say about the famous motorcycle crash that originally sort of kicks off this story. The prison doctor at Princetown was killed on this spot in 1921. Mrs. E.M. Battiscombe, the widow of his successor, wrote to me in 1961. The prison doctor, Dr. Helby, was asked to go to Postbridge to attend the inquest on French, who had been thrown from his trap and killed, but on another road. He had his motor bicycle and sidecar and took with him two little girls for the ride. They were the daughters of the deputy governor. Going down the hill into Postbridge, he was flung off the bicycle and his neck was broken. There was no apparent damage to the machine. The children were thrown out on the verge and shaken, but not much hurt. Villagers took charge of them and saw them home. Now note that as a folklorist, she's not going back to the primary sources or the initial news coverage. She's interviewing people in the area and collecting their remembrances. And I think that's wonderful. But many subsequent researchers mistakenly take her book of folk tales and anecdotes as though it were primary documents. Keep that in mind as we hear a second story that is widely repeated without the context in the ghost story world. So this is a lengthy reading, and I also need to note that uh, for American audiences, a caravan in England is sort of like a camper van or a, a, like a Winnebago, but maybe smaller back then because it was the 1920s. My parents knew Postbridge well. They had a caravan which was trundled out to the village for a month every summer, plus tents, fuel, guests, and bloodhounds. One year, I think it was 1924, my father wanted a slight change of scenery, so we camped among the old ruins of the powder mills, a deserted gunpowder factory about a mile west of Postbridge and half a mile to the north of the haunted road. The weather was good, and I played in the lovely clear cherry brook with the farm children who had a boat or watched the fantastic caddisworms in their gritty igloos. Mother did quite a lot of sketching there. Some years later, she told me she had seen the hairy hand herself one night when we were all in our bunks. About 1950, I persuaded her to write down her memory of this. So keep in mind, this is a 1982 book, including a 1950 rewrite of a story from 1924. 
possible errors may have been introduced. It was a cold, moonlit night, and I was in my bunk in a caravan on a very lonely part of Dartmoor. I was at the side of the caravan facing a small window at the end, under which my husband lay deeply asleep in his bunk. I awoke suddenly with a feeling of fear and danger and quite wide awake. I knew that there was some power very seriously menacing us near, and I must act swiftly. As I at last looked up to the little window at the end of the caravan, I saw something moving, and as I stared, my heart beating fast, I saw it was the fingers and palm of a very large hand with many hairs on the joints in the back of it, clawing up and up to the top of the window, which was a little open. I knew it wished to do harm to my husband sleeping below. I knew that the owner of the hand hated us and wished us harm. And I knew that it was no ordinary human hand and that no blow or shot would have had any power over it. I hope I am Christian and almost unconsciously I made the sign of the cross and I prayed very much that we might be kept safe from harm. At once the hand slowly sank down out of sight and I knew that the danger of harm had gone. I did say a thankful prayer and fell at once into a peaceful sleep. We stayed in that spot several weeks, but I never felt the evil influence again near the caravan. But I did not feel happy in some places not far off and would not for anything have walked alone on the moor at night or on the tor above where our caravan rested. This has always seemed to me a very good account and much as she always gave it verbally. We often discussed it. After that experience, she thought the influence began to withdraw to the northern part of the moor, frustrated by the advance of modern man and his motor cars, no doubt. Occasionally, there are car accidents along that road over a very long sector as far as Merivale, and in newspaper reports there are often references to hand occurrences of the 20s and earlier, but no one seems to have seen or felt the hand since. So I suppose the road is clear now of that particular bogey. One thing I would note here uh, is that her mother's story is incredibly reminiscent of what it feels like to have sleep paralysis. The hypnagogic, hypnopompic experiences of hallucinations uh, that happen with those kind of sleep-related experiences of the mind, uh, it, it often includes that element of menace. That, that and dread that, that even though you can't quite explain what's going on and you know it's not real or maybe you don't even know if it's real or not it's, it's ambiguous there is a sense of menace and evil and it is it is quite quite disturbing so I'm even though like the skeptical part of me says hey this is a reminiscence that's been recalled many many times and we know how that if you retell stories and repeat them the elements will change and memories change they're malleable still there's a really strong feeling to me of, of familiarity to the way she tells that story that sounds like she may have had a sleep paralysis or similar type experience and that it might have been flavored because of the popularity of the legend of the hairy hands. Regardless, what that story is, it sounds very sincere, but what it is not is any kind of primary evidence of the hairy hands as we know it from the newspaper accounts and that sort of thing. So, yeah. But I really am excited to learn about Theo Brown and her folklore work now and look forward to discussing some of her work later. So let's get back to my discussion with Karen. 
I've, the name I've seen associated with this caravan story is a Theo Brown, which also makes me think that there might be some link to T. Gifford being referred to as Theodore, that there might be some kind oh, of... Oh, like, like some confusion there about it? Some confusion about that. And uh, so apparently this person was a, a Devonshire folklorist. But then some other sources claim that she was, I think, a, a child when this happened, so she wouldn't have been married. Mm. Uh, and so possibly this was a story that was told to her by her mother or even her well. grandmother. But again, we get this kind of murkiness of detail. And, and it, it sounds like that might it might be, because I see, we see this all the time in our research where someone says, this mm. happened in 1820-whatever. And you go mm. and look, and it's like, well, that's in the narrative. They say this is when it took place, but the story was told in 1903. You know, like, you know, some far right. away. So, uh, uh, you know... Uh, Ostman's Bigfoot story, for example, is you know mm-hmm. decades after it allegedly happened. These 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 the, that that gap can be cleared up uh, by mm-hmm. uh, as, what do we call those things again? Uh, references, putting references <laughs> in your story. <laughs> well, I think that it, indeed, if this case that this caravan story uh, was being told around 1924 and might have been spurred on by the events of 1921. Oh, absolutely. It's a possibility, though, that if this story was being told by uh, other generations, that it might have predated the hairy hand story uh, in in the sense of these motorists having accidents. So uh, it's really a bit of a chicken and egg quandary here. We're not really sure exactly what came first. Everything's just really uh, all over the place and pretty confusing. But I think one of the big questions I have with this story is if these hands did exist, if people did feel them or see them in one way or another, whose hands were they? Yeah. Who did they belong to? Well, that and literally the spiritualists themselves are saying, well, if it's not a thought form, we don't know of any, like, why it would be a ghost. Like, what, like who would have died out here that would have been causing people to steer off the road, that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. um, there's a really popular podcast called The Unexplained by um, Richard McLean Smith. No relation. I mean, no I, assume, relation. <laughs> I assume there's no relation. There's a lot of Smiths out there. We do get around. Um, yeah. But uh, he, in his story, he's got all kinds of details uh, that I was not able to get to a primary source. Uh, one of his parts included, uh, one of his clips included the idea that Maud was uh, on the the motorcycle with Halby. And mm-hmm. I had just, I, I couldn't find anything to support that. But he also goes on to postulate that, that the disembodied hands might be the ghost of hmm. an American sailor who was imprisoned during the war of 1812 and ended up escaping from prison during an uprising and made it to the road and then was killed by a cart. Um, <laughs> you know, it's American thin. soldiers it, are often blamed for a lot of things with the, the introduction of uh, like alien big cats in Australia. It's, oh, it's the American soldiers that brought these creatures into the country as yes, mascots, that kind yes, of thing. Yeah. I, so. <laughs> blame the Yanks. Yeah. There was a, they're oversexed, they're overpaid, and they're over here. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I do want to ask too about the – oh, we should talk a little bit more about some of the theories of whose hands – one of the stories that I've heard about was a guy from a local gunpowder mill and that there was an explosion and he was uh, – all that was left of him after this accident were his hands and so that his 
disembodied hands to this day still hang around the area uh, and were to blame for these accidents. There was a real gunpowder factory, which is mentioned in another part of this episode, and it had a tragic accident in 1851 in which uh, several people were injured and killed. The details for that will be in the show notes if you'd like to read more about it. It just kills me, this idea that, uh, first of all, people people visualize this story and they draw hairy hands. like, And it's like, mm-hmm. you never see the hands. They're invisible. That's literally like, they have th- these hands have two properties. Well, I guess three. These hands have three properties. They're not connected to a body. They're invisible. And they're hairy. And I guess if you count that they seem to also be maliciously bad drivers, that's four. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Nobody's postulated I, that it's a, a a teenager who spends a lot of time at home um, working on private projects that cause hairy palms, uh, who who really wants to learn to drive and is just really exuberant as a ghost about driving, and but not a very good driver. Is that possible? Now, now we've put that out there. Yeah. So. Exactly. <laughs> So another thing that I think we should talk about, I think you've got a clip for this article too, was uh, a letter from or a letter to the editor by a woman named Beatrice Chase who had a theory about the hairy hands. Yeah, let me let me let me read about the accident. Let me read this to you. From the Western Morning News, Monday twenty fourth, october nineteen twenty one. The unseen hands. Are accidents due to magnetic rocks? To the editor of the Western Morning News and Mercury. Sir, in reference to the various press reports on this subject, I may mention that I happened to see one of the extraordinary swerves in the same place at 3.30 p.m. on September 15th. We were motoring up from two bridges and saw a motor coach full of passengers ahead of us on the road coming towards us. While several hundred yards distant, the coach suddenly swerved into the roadside almost at right angles. It seemed for a few seconds impossible either that it should not turn over, or that the passengers did not get thrown out. It was a long, straight piece of road, with no curve and no other traffic, and the coach was being slowly and carefully driven. When we came up to the place, we examined the tire marks on the road, which were almost right angular. I never saw such a thing. May I suggest that those things may be due to magnetic rocks, of which there are many on Dartmoor? This extraordinary season may have increased or altered magnetic currents. It would appear to have some connection with metal, and the steering wheel or handlebars would act as conductors, and an electric shock might account for the strange sensation described by the young officer. In the interests of the public, it would be nice if someone with the requisite instruments could test that road from the top of Merripit Hill to Archerton. Beatrice Chase, Vinton House, would come in the more October 23rd. Yeah. So Beatrice, uh, she is actually, she was a popular author from the area. She loved uh, the Dartmoor region and used it a lot in her stories. Uh, Mm -hmm. Interesting woman. Uh, Sad story. It's your basic, uh, as they they think they talked to one of the websites about her. It's your basic, uh, uh, riches to rags success story. Really? <laughs> yeah, she started out quite wealthy and ended up died a pauper, died a pauper and quite mad. They, uh, allegedly, she was taken away in a straitjacket. So, 
uh, yeah. No, did not, not know that. That's yeah, really yeah, but, sad. but but it no, it's it's sad. It's you know, it's it's. But but well, I mean, so is her theory that like magnetic rocks are luring vehicles off the road out here. What I wonder is, I mean, we do have a few cases here, but if this was indeed behind these accidents, why wouldn't it be happening to a lot more motorists? Uh, which brings us to like a really so from a skeptical perspective or just if you're going to be an honest investigator into this one uh what is it Hyman's imperative before you you know try to solve a mystery make sure there's really a mystery there that's I'm paraphrasing begin with, yeah. yeah yeah so <laughs> one question would be are there an unusually large number of accidents on the stretch of road I I couldn't find anything to indicate that there was what I did find is that because of all the furor uh, or you know excitement around these stories, the community did go investigate whether there was something wrong with the roads, literally. And so they decided that the camber of the road needed to be repaired. Now, what that is, is when you build a road, you need to account for water flow off that surface. So roads are usually not completely flat. They usually have some kind of a degree of angle to them so that water won't pool on the road. So they resurfaced the road and changed the angle and apparently that diminished the number of accidents. But I don't have any accident records that indicate a higher degree of danger. And I don't think you'll find one because it's a pretty straight you know, piece of road. And what do you see when you get a lot of accidents? Uh, in most places, they will put up new road signs. Warning, slow down, change the speed limit, curves ahead. You know, Some mm-hmm. kind of guidance that you're entering a dangerous area. Um mm-hmm. The, you can go onto Google Roads, and we'll have links in the show notes. You can just go click on it. Go drive down this road with your computer. It's really straight. Mm. There's nothing. Yep. It's beautiful. It's 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 uh, lonely. Uh, you know, it seems like somewhere you would see you know Catherine and Heathcliff hanging out. But uh, it's it's <laughs> <laughs> little Kate but Bush I, there. One second. <laughs> absolutely, but I think that uh, we were talking about the early days of vehicles as well. And yes. uh, how you've got evidence that there were problems with the steering wheel or other mechanical failures. So I think a combination of uh, these vehicle malfunctions with the state of the road before it was repaired, I think really gives us some good natural explanations yeah. for the causes of these these accidents. I mean, th- this is literally, we literally know a, a piece of equipment broke on the first two cases that are alleged to be the steering wheel, hairy hands, or whatever. Now, even if we thought that the person driving felt the steering wheel being wrenched, you know, that's just not part of the story. We know, you know, I mean, I could sort of see where you could, like, it would be really easy to say, well, as a skeptic, I think what happened was, as we had these equipment failures, they felt the steering wheel being wrenched and they postulated, they felt hands. It's just a normal cycle. Well, no, I don't even think it was that. They had accidents. And then this third event happens with the military officer who claims he felt hairy hands. And then it gets backwritten onto these other stories. Like it, it's a... It's a to justify them. Yeah, it's it's all it's a it's a retcon. The whole thing's a retcon. And <laughs> and now now you know this is the only story we hear that they were all hairy hands stories, you know? And and yes, it's just yeah. it's just not so. It is such a creepy story though. I mean it is it's lovely, a really but... <laughs> really good story. And I'm wondering if there have been any modern sightings of the hands 
And I'm wondering if it's a popular location for legend tripping because I, for one, would love to go there and check it out. Yes, this is absolutely beautiful countryside for legend tripping. Uh, it's gorgeous. Um, well, yeah, not only for the hairy hands, but I think just for lots yeah, of other local legends. I think if you're looking for – right, you're looking for uh, black dogs, uh, you know. Um, um, yes. Or if you're looking for uh, – where sheeps, uh, <laughs> <laughs> strange creatures. And, yeah, no. Well, it's, that's the thing too. I wonder if in big cats, any of yeah. the stories, uh, I'm wondering if the hairy hands weren't that of a, a beast or a creature instead of a human. I could. Well, I guess it would help if it weren't invisible. I mean, this. Remember, we were recently talking with. Uh, then it could be anything you want. So Jeffrey Weinstock, right? And he, one of the things they mm-hmm. talked about was invisible monsters. And like, here we are. Here's an invisible monster. It's a. It's you. You. You could say it's a ghost, and people seem to be trying to slap ghost on it. But it's just a pair of hairy hands. It's that's not particularly ghostly, you know. Even yeah, if it was it supposed is- to be this a, a sailor or a criminal or whatever. Who has hands so hairy that, <laughs> that that you can literally feel them when they're touching you from the you know the palm side? Like like that, that's just yeah. Which is why I think there's potential for cryptid claims. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it also feels very much like a, a creature out of an M.R. James ghost story because his ghosts are often creepy or hairy or you know insect like or you know that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Well, uh, I think it totally adds an extra element of creepiness to the story that they're hairy. Oh, There's something malevolent about uh, it. You sound like my wife. What? <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, uh, the, there is one other thing I wanted to mention that the, this idea of uh, uh, elementals uh, being in the pop culture at the time um, could be uh, – I can demonstrate that through uh, – there's a ghost story by E.F. Benson, which is about um, – a guy going to visit his friends and they bought a country estate. And when they go out into the estate land, as he's walking through the woods, it gets super quiet. There's no birds or anything. And basically he and his friend end up investigating and discover that the, the woods are haunted by an elemental. And because it has a corporeal component, they go hunting after it with shotguns. It's a fun story. I don't want to spoil it, but it's uh, it only really makes sense in the context of this spiritualist milieu. Uh, and so otherwise it's like, what, I don't know what I just read. There's no ghost. What's an elemental, you know? It's, yeah. So. It sounds strange today. Yeah. Out of context. But if, it, but, it, within that, if you know this context, it's a rocking good tale. And I'm sure that we have some listeners who live in the area and if they want to go and check this out or look into it, or if they've got any further insight, we'd love to hear from people. Absolutely. I mean, and again, you, you, you definitely can go take a virtual drive down this road from the comfort of your own home thanks to Google Street. So I love that. I think that's just grand. Um, yeah, it, it's just such a, such a fun story. And uh, you said that you've heard about this or you, you'd known about this since the 1980s. That's right. To be honest, it was the first time I'd heard of the story when you spoke about it for Monster Talk Live on YouTube. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to look into it with me. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I, I think we, I, I mean, I feel actually, I feel pretty comfortable that we have demonstrated that it is a an idea that has been retroactively added on to real tragedies, uh, but that there's no evidence whatsoever that the this idea of the invisible hairy hands has anything to do with those cases like that, which is just fascinating to me. 
And uh, given that we know that, we know the spiritualist nature of the original story, and we know the enthusiasm of the public for the paranormal. We know the stories were in October, approaching Halloween. The, the, mm-hmm. Everything says this is a creepy spiritualist ghost story picked up popularly by the public and then becomes sort of uh, burnished uh, over time as embellished. You know, uh, yeah. embellished. I was just saying like it becomes baked in that there was mm-hmm. always a supernatural element. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely hasn't been embellished for a hundred years. So I'd like, I can't say, uh, you know, that we'll put it to rest because people are still talking about the Watertown ghosts and uh, the Gyra ghosts and all the things we think <laughs> we've got good explanations for. But mm-hmm. I, if you're scared of the hairy hands, I think you just keep your seatbelt on, wear a helmet if you're a motorcyclist, and you probably have other things to worry about. I don't think uh, hairy hands are coming for you. Yeah, make sure you get your car serviced regularly. Uh, yes, that's a good idea. <laughs> stay sober, well, stay think, safe. <laughs> I do think it is uh, like a lot of these stories that we look at that have that grain of truth, that you have real people um, who are behind these stories and, and real deaths, accidents that took place Um you know, I think it's it can be a little disrespectful to paste all of these hauntings and paranormal legends onto them. Um, you know, I mean, these people can't tell us exactly what happened, and um, you know, there, there's very little evidence out there. So it is just good to look for natural explanations for for these stories and uh, to to try to be respectful for of those who are involved. Yeah, sorry, I got sidetracked by wondering if if I put fake steering wheels on my shoulders, could I get a free back rub on this road? <laughs> <laughs> that was worth it. <laughs> but yeah, no, nevertheless, it's just a really interesting story, and uh, there's just not not a lot of skepticism about it. If you no, I, I couldn't find any. Into this it's on possible. YouTube or yeah. mine, it's people just retelling. The same stories, yes. maybe, maybe as you say, embellishing it a little bit here and there, and it's just kind of avalanched over the the decades, yes. uh, over the the past century now. And but, uh, I guess that's the interesting thing too. We're at a a century now um, since these events took place. Some of the people who've picked this story have included Charles Fort, so you know he included it in his book Wild Talents, which a lot of Charles Fort stuff is just him taking newspaper clippings. And like putting them together with a little bit of commentary, and so uh, yeah. I, I will put Not a really link. Investigating them or researching? No, them. no. And I mean, he he had all kinds of strange ideas about you know conspiracies and how the newspapers were trying to hide things. And anyway, uh, I- interesting character, but uh, he does Very. he does have an interesting historical uh, value. I think as because he collects all these stories. Um, it gives people a place to go, first of all, to pick up stuff like this where they just repeat it. And also for us as investigators to say, well, what do you think was going on there? Maybe we could look into it. So um, I guess a lot of that's about how much curiosity you have and how much you you know want, want to try to dig in to find the root cause behind these things. But oh, I yeah, will- it definitely has some folkloric value. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I mean, there are some lovely and entertaining retellings of the story online. And mm-hmm. hopefully what I did at the intro uh, fits right in there with that, with the, with the difference being that if you check our show notes, you'll find every primary source associated with this case that I could dig up. And if you find okay. some that you that we miss, please share them with me. I'll add them to the show notes because I'd, I'd love to get as much of the original stuff in here as I can. Yeah, indeed. Well, thank you so much. I'm really glad that we talked about this topic again because, again, we just we just touched upon it 
in Monster Talk Live, so it was good to delve yeah, into Yeah, no, and I, I suspected when we did Monster Talk Live that this was what was going on. And I tried very hard to keep a bias out of this when I did my research because, uh, you know, it's really easy to do queries and searches that would just, you know, fulfill your wishes. But I, yeah. I just began to suspect that there wasn't uh, any association with the original case and the hairy hands until the Daily Mail story. And that t- that turned out mm-hmm. to be, as far as I can tell, true. So yeah. I, I work. Thank you. And I was excited, but, um, you know, always a little sad that yet another monster falls to inquiry. Um, But, but. Often the way. Always the way. This is our last episode for 2021. That's right. So, yeah, I mean, happy holidays to everyone. And uh, happy new year, too. And uh, we look forward to continuing to bring Monster Talk to everyone in the new year and all of the regular podcast episodes that we have monster talk live based on a true story uh let's let's keep lots of monsters in 2022 that's right stay spooky that's 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 it stay spooky for 2022 uh we'll see you in january thank you so much Thanks, for joining everyone. us yep <laughs> monster talk you've been listening to monster talk the science show about monsters i'm blake smith and i'm karen stolzner You just heard us discussing my research into the case of the Hairy Hands of Devon, which is also known as the Hairy Hands of Dartmoor. Check the show notes for lots and lots of links related to this case if you'd like to dig further on your own. Monster Talk is proud to be a part of the Airwave Media family, home of such shows as Ben Franklin's World, Food with Mark Bittman, and When Things Go Wrong. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. If you have friends who like this sort of thing, please do share this episode. Word of mouth and positive reviews on your podcast platforms are our very best ways of reaching new audience members and growing the Monster Talk family. Happy New Year from us to you. May your next year be safe, healthy, and prosperous. And as always, thank you for listening.
this has been a Monster House presentation.